there are some ballets that are outward looking, you know, they are for the audience, things like Don Quixote, and they're a party, they're a party that you share with the audience. And then the applause at the end is just a celebration of the party. It's both of us going, we had a great time. And then there are ballets that are quite dramatic, you know, you do something like Juliet and you go through a whole journey of loss. And then it's a little bit difficult because in the first minute, you're still not yourself. And then to suddenly be aware of the audience, it always takes me a few seconds to, to just be able to let go of what I've just experienced and, and be grateful for the recognition. Swan Lake, The Nutcracker, Romeo and Juliet, The Rite of Spring. As the principal dancer of the Royal Ballet in London, Tamara Rojo has played all the main parts in the ballet canon. Yet it is as artistic director of the English National Ballet that she has made the most impact on the world of dance. From an ambition to open up performances for a varied public, to her condemnation of Brexit and its effect on the British cultural industry, Rojo has brought a bold new approach to the historic company's proceedings. Her recent choices in matters of programming, with shows she said and she persisted, also prove her credentials as a staunch feminist. The performances are odes to visionary women in the arts, including Frida Kahlo and Pina Bausch. We sat down with her to discuss how ballet has always been populated with powerful women, both in front and behind the curtains. I'm Chiara Rimella, and I'm pleased to say she joined me on The Big Interview. Tamara, thank you so much for joining us in the studio today. It's a pleasure to have you here. And I think with the story of someone like you, I'd like to begin where many dance-based stories begin, which mm -hmm. is right at the very beginning in childhood. So I understand that you started dancing when you were five. My question is, is dance something that you choose or does it happen to your life and then you're kind of stuck with it for the rest of it? I think in my case, it's certainly something I chose. How aware is a five-year-old of a choice? I don't know. I remember choosing it. I remember the first time I stepped into a studio where there was a ballet class, and I remember feeling that I had found my place. And I can't explain why at five it was so clear to me. And it was very much a choice because my parents didn't want me to do ballet. They have signed me up to all the things, and my dad especially, they've had a friend that was a ballet dancer, and they found the struggle to be too much. So they would rather me do other things and probably follow an academic path into university. That's a very normal aspiration for Spanish families. That's what you think is the right thing for your children, you know. To be a performer is not that serious of a profession. So I had to fight and basically cry every day for six months until they gave up and said, OK, you can go to ballet. So it was very much a choice in my case. And when I tried to rationalize it, it comes down to quietness. I was an only child. I was very used to playing by myself and having quite a big inner world. And I found the school a really difficult place where you had to consistently interact and respond and be around and surrounded by a lot of noise and a lot of people and a lot of questions, and I didn't enjoy it. And suddenly, within that world, there was this other world that allowed me to be inside. It's interesting what you say, because on the one hand, dance is such an 
an isolation practice. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, it's a very collaborative practice and it's always accompanied by music. So there's an element of loudness of spectacle to it as well. Mm-hmm. How does that work for you? Do you get lost and drowned in the moment or is it always a moment where you find yourself inside? It's a very interesting question because I didn't realize it was a performance. I thought being a ballet dancer meant being in the ballet studio until you became the ballet teacher. And so when my mother took me to see a live show, it was a shock for me. I hated it. The thought of having to be in front of people doing something that I felt was so personal, it really jarred with me. But, you know, I was hooked. I needed to dance by then. And then when the performance happened, what was quite a surprise and a good one is that when you're on the stage, at least in my case, you can hardly see the audience very often. And so it continues to be a private place even though it's been watched by so many people. So for me, especially at the beginning, later on you become more of a professional and then you are more aware of the audience and how to work for them. But especially at the beginning, it was just a continuation of this private conversation that I could share with my partner or with my colleagues, but we were all in it together. And there wasn't so much a feeling of it being a performance as such. I want to move forward to from when you moved over to the UK mm-hmm. and started dancing in Scotland and later in England. I wonder, dance is a very transnational world in many ways, yeah. but what did you find were the differences between dancing in Spain and dancing in the UK? Is it still the case that ballet is a leveller across different countries or did performing for a national ballet, like yeah. the Scottish National Ballet, change something in the way that you're approaching things? The short answer to that is it didn't. And partly it's because, as you say, dance, classical ballet especially, is a truly international profession. When I joined the Scottish Ballet, the director was Galina Samsova, so she was Russian. The first ballet mistress was Japanese. My colleagues were from all over the place. There was a certain number of Scottish dancers there, and the touring was around Scotland and part of England. But other than that, neither the repertoire nor the professionals around me had a particular sense of an identity that belonged to Scotland. And I'm not sure that I would like to belong to an organization like that, even if it was a Spanish one. I think that is one of the beautiful things about dance that has always been able to communicate through emotion to the whole of humanity, whatever you're from, it doesn't matter. Therefore, you can travel around the world and talk to each other with dance. So if you narrow it down to something that is very patriotic, (laughs) in a way, you miss the point. I completely agree. There is also another level, though, I think, to this, to this idea that dance is a transnational world that exists a bit on its own. That is, a lot of people find that there is a disconnect between this world, especially of ballet, of classical dance, Mm -hmm. and the rest, where, in a way, we're used to it being like the olden days, where the international elites were all in communications with one another, but perhaps the common public did not go and attend these events. Do you think the difference between these two worlds is shortening? Are we getting to a point where those two worlds are not so quite so separated anymore? I think that they are definitely not, and at least in case of ballet in the UK. And I think that's partly because it has a long history of public funding, which means there is 
really very cheap seats. I mean, English National Ballet, when we tour, we have thousands of seats at £12 or £14. So it's cheaper than going to the cinema. It's definitely cheaper than going to football, which is something that everybody considers a popular thing, but it's rather expensive activity. In terms of access to ballet, it is clear that in the UK, like theatre, is something that a lot of people do. And what is also very interesting is that the professionals are certainly not from the elite. We all come from rather humble backgrounds. Most of us actually come from rather humble backgrounds. We are workers of ballet. And especially in EMB, where we're a touring company, you know, there's certainly not a feeling of belonging to the elites when you're on a train on your way to whatever it is that you're going to, you know, sharing your journey and you go there and you have your gigs, bed and breakfast, and it doesn't feel like something that an elite will do. So I think in that way, it is a pity that that perception exists because it is not the reality of the profession, certainly not in the UK. I'm going to take a slightly political tangent, but one that I think is relevant in this context, because I read somewhere that when you first moved to Scotland, you took a job that wasn't necessarily particularly well paid. And that kind of level of pay, if a Brexit with no deal was to happen, would probably prevent somebody like you from moving to Scotland. What do you think a situation like this, one that the UK could be facing very shortly, could do to the future of the arts and of ballet specifically. You know, we talk a lot about what effect would Brexit have on touring musicians, but ballet is another profession that relies so heavily on troops being able to move freely between countries. Indeed, it is a very scary prospect, one that I have repeatedly made clear <laughs> to, to the people that can make a difference, and so far not with much success. So it's very worrying. The fact is that if we had been in a situation that we might end up with when I was 20 years old, I would have not been able to come in because I definitely would have not hit the minimum wage that you should get for a visa. And I didn't speak any English. Two things that are considered essential to be able to get a visa, but that obviously don't apply to a lot of professions, including designers, musicians, composers, dancers. But it's also not only what happens to the British artist, you know. Thousands of artists depend on freelance contracts. That's often come the day before. You get a phone call from Europe and they say, we need a musician, we need this, we need a designer, we need a costume maker, we need something. Can you just jump on a train? If we need to go through visas applications, if every time they try to hire a British artist there is a cost and all that extra expense and time, they just won't do it. Not because they don't want the artist, but because art organizations never have enough money. <laughs> so they are not going to have enough money to do that extra. And it also will mean that organizations that depend on touring in Europe and depend on co-production from Europe and even funding from Europe will struggle or disappear. So it is a very gloomy prospect if things don't go reasonably well. Do you think the arts have a duty to be politicized? Do you think people who live in the arts have a duty to have a political voice? No, I don't. I think arts... Artists should choose what they want to speak about. Art should be free to speak about what they feel is important, whether that is political or emotional or personal. I do think, though, that artists have a responsibility to be aware of what is happening and also to have the bravery to speak up. 
if they feel that this is something important to them. But it's not a duty. I think the duty is honesty, honesty with your work and commitment with your work. And not everybody is political anyway. And not all art that is political is good. You've spoken already about how in art and ballet, many things are about commitment. And I feel like, symbolically, there is very much a myth of ballet as self-sacrifice, perhaps as one of the arts in which this is most important. Do you think this is still true? And do you think it takes somebody who's willing to make that sacrifice to be a ballerina? I don't like the word sacrifice. I think we all have to make choices in life. I think what is probably extraordinary about ballet is that the choices you make are choices you have to make very young because if you make them later, you might not be able to be a professional dancer. But they are choices that should not be damaging. The choices you ought to make is, do you want to spend enough time practicing? Do you want to give up drinking and maybe dating and holidays to learn a skill that takes years to properly develop? Do you want to study? So those are the questions that ought to be asked of a young person. I think the other issues that you cannot ignore, issues about body image, issues that are quite negative, are the wrong kind of school or the wrong kind of company or the wrong kind of demand to make and should not be made of young dancers. But I do think that there is a value on somebody willing to make those choices for a future that they want. And I think it's something that in society is less and less likely. We see people seem to want to get very fast reward. And we see that people become famous easily in what appears to be very little effect even though perhaps it is much bigger when we see what happens to contestants in Love Island or to reality TV people or to people that have a lot of followers in Instagram. It all looks so easy, but in fact it isn't, and we're starting to begin to understand that. I think it's more honest to ask a young person, do you want to practice at the bar and in the studio hours so that you can be a good dancer than to make false promises? Through the injuries, through the effort, through the endless hours in the studio, did it always feel like it was worth it? Was there ever a moment where you felt like maybe this is too much? Of course there were. There were moments where, you know, I've been a teenager. Teenagers have all kinds of thoughts. And definitely, you know, when I saw friends that were going away for weeks of holidays to the mountains and having fun and dating boys, and I was, you know, once again in a summer school <laughs> doing more ballet, I did question, do I really want this? And the answer was consistently yes. And if I had been known, I was lucky enough that I had a family that had no expectations of me becoming a ballet dancer. And that if anything would have probably been relieved if I said, actually, I want to be a lawyer. So I had that freedom of choice. And I think that is the important thing. As long as the choice is consistently made by the dancer, then it's okay. It's interesting in the context of the conversation that we were having earlier about how everything feels like it's your own individual moment and you're not necessarily that focused on that audience. But that moment in the end when you take a bow, how does that feel? Does it still feel like it fills you with a different emotion? It's strange, and it depends on the ballets. There are some ballets that are 
outward looking, you know, they are for the audience, things like Don Quixote, and they're a party, they're a party that you share with the audience. And then the applause at the end is just a celebration of the party. It's both of us going, we had a great time. And then there are ballets that are quite dramatic, you know, you do something like Juliet and you go through a whole journey of loss. And then it's a little bit difficult because in the first minute, you're still not yourself. And then to suddenly be aware of the audience, it always takes me a few seconds to to just be able to let go of what I've just experienced and and be grateful for the recognition. It's just a completely different feeling. How important is acting to ballet? Essential. It is essential. And it is a skill that also needs to be developed and that in general it is less focused on, especially in the early training, because dancing is very difficult. So we spend most of our time just trying to get the technique, the actual physical technique that we need to deliver the repertoire. So very often we we suddenly find that you have a young dancer that has all of the skill to do a certain role, but doesn't actually know how to be that role. But it is essential because ultimately it's all about telling stories. We are there to tell a story. It's interesting because ballet requires the same kind of diligence as an athletic kind of pursuit. But at the same time, you must never forget that it's also an artistic pursuit. And how do you marry both the extravagance of it and the discipline? And the maturity. If you dedicate so many years to that discipline, at what point do you live a life that can give you the food, the emotional food and the intellectual food that you need to deliver the artistic side of it. And it is a difficult balance, and I think it's one that we consistently question as well. Certainly it's one that I question as an artistic director. One of the things I tell my dancers is go out, you know, (laughs) go out, see the world. If you have free time, don't be in the studio watching others practice what you've already practiced. Get out into the street, go to museums, go to the theater, watch movies. Get friends, have a social life outside of the ballet world. Because I want artists that have a mind of their own, that ask questions, that don't take things for granted just because they've been done before like that. Even though they're more difficult to manage, if I'm honest. (laughs) But I'd rather have that. I, I want to have intelligent artists. Let's talk about then your role as artistic director of of the ENB. What from your previous life did you bring into it, both from your life as a dancer and also what kind of influences do you think shape most the vision that you have for the programming? One thing that I've always loved is history and especially history of ballet and history of dance. So by the time I became artistic director... I had a clear idea of the place of this company in history, in the history of dance in the United Kingdom and in the history of ballet as a whole. And I think that's what gave me a certain assurance of what I believed the role of English National Ballet was, which is, in my opinion, a visionary company from the beginning. I mean, it was created to bring the greatest ballet to the widest possible audience, wherever they are, whatever their means. And that, at that time, is revolutionary because everybody else was trying to make a ballet company that was exclusive, that had a royal title, that belonged to an opera house. 
And then you have these two people, Markova and Dolin, who came from the Ballerus, which was a company that was a touring company, that said, no, no, our duty is to bring this wonderful art form to everybody in the United Kingdom. Our duty is to go out there, not to sit in one theater, but to go and find the audience, to bring them the best and to make them possible to see it and to enjoy it, no matter what their financial position may be. And that is what this company continues to be and what feeds my artistic vision and why I wanted to take this role. Because I had been part of this company as a young dancer. I had seen what it means to bring this to people that otherwise might not see it again for a whole year. So I had this sense of duty towards the company. Obviously, the question is, what is the most wonderful ballet? You know, that is where we can have a lot of conversation about what I think is best or other people think is best. And and there I also feel quite a lot of inspiration from great people. I mean, for me, the figure of Nureyev is very inspiring, and not just as a dancer, because as a woman, maybe not so much as a dancer, but as an artistic director. He was groundbreaking in how he saw the classical repertoire, but also in the fact that he invited people that no other ballet company consider ought to be part of the ballet curriculum. And in a way, that's what I do. I think in that perspective, I do have a sense of duty to Britain in the kind of choreographers I bring, that they have to represent the whole of the cultural of Britain, you know, whether it's Akram Khan or Russell Malifan or Liam Scarlett or female choreographers, female voices on the stage. Or I just want to be a company that speaks to the people of today. We hardly ever think about the women behind the scenes in ballet. You know, it's a strange world because on the one hand, you have the prima ballerina that's always in the spotlight. But sometimes the person who's exposed isn't necessarily the most powerful. Do you feel that in ballet also this balance needs to be redressed? And how can we redress it? I think what's interesting is that we seem to have forgotten our own history. Because the truth is, the big companies in this country, whether that is Royal Ballet, English National Ballet, Rambert, Birmingham Royal Ballet, they all came about because of women. You know, it was Ninette de Valois, Mary Rambert and Alicia Markova who created these companies. They were directors. They were leading from the front. At the time, there was also choreographer Nijinska, Brodnislava Nijinska, and her works were represented on the stage in both Rambert and Royal Ballet, for example, and actually London Festival Ballet. So in a way, somehow, we, the ballet world, forgot our own history. <laughs> I don't know how that happened, but it did. So it's not that I'm being that revolutionary. I'm just readdressing the balance here and just saying, you know, all voices ought to be on the stage. Women, men, and different cultural backgrounds and contemporary visions. And and I do think that it has been something that people have responded to and that now you can see all across the ballet world commissions for women. If anything, there's now a, a lack of enough women ready for all the commissioning. So I think that's a good thing. The touring life, does it take its toll on you? Do you enjoy it? Do you get a kick out of it? Is it tiring? How does it make you feel? It's all of the above. (laughs) (laughs) It is wonderful because the audiences wait for sometimes a whole year to see us and they love us and they welcome us and it's wonderful to feel special. It's tiring 
you know, often I have to drive back home at 11 p.m. on a Saturday night from Liverpool, which means I don't get home until 3 a.m. and then I'm back out on Monday morning. So it is tiring. It's certainly not luxurious, but it's meaningful. It is meaningful. Do you have a favourite stage? Um, I can't choose. I've been really fortunate. I've danced in some extraordinary places. But I would say emotionally, for me, the Albert Hall will always be special because it was the first time I saw English National Ballet perform. It was my first day in the company and they were doing Swan Lake in the round. And for me, it was the beginning of understanding the place that the arts have in the heart of British culture. I looked around and I saw people that have paid three pounds to be sitting next to me at the very top of the Albert Hall and to see this incredible show with people sitting in jeans and they were students or music students and they clearly were loving it and to see that this could happen and the meaning that it had, the importance that it had, for me was the beginning of a revelation. On the one hand, it's important that we put on Pina Bausch as a rite of spring. But on the other hand, why is it important that we keep doing Swan Lake? I think, first and foremost, because it's an extraordinary piece of work. <laughs> so why wouldn't you? <laughs> also because it is the kind of work that dancers aspire to do. You know, we train for many years because most of us want to do this iconic traditional work, Swan Lake, Sleeping Beauty in a Cracker. But even more importantly is because very often is the first piece somebody will see. Most of the new audiences that come to see us, in fact, up to 70% of the audience in each show that come to see Nutcracker is new to the art form. That means that they take a chance on something that they've heard is safe, that they've heard is popular, that they heard is good. And that's normal. I do the same when I experience. I often choose something that I know perhaps I go to see Hamlet at the National. It may be a take of a new Hamlet. It may be by an interesting director like Robert Icke, but it's Hamlet. So I feel, okay, this is relatively safe. In a way, that's what Nutcracker does. It's also a tradition of families passing down the art form. Grandmothers take their grandchildren or aunties take their niece and nephews to see Valley for the first time in something that is a, a family celebration. So that is also why we, we need to continue to do those works. Ballet and training is all about repetition and performing, as much as it is about a spectacle, it's also about repetition. What is your attitude to it? Does it get boring? Do you find solace in repetition? I think... That's very personal to each dancer, so I can only respond for myself. I think I do find solace in the morning tradition repetition of ballet class. For me, it's like a physical meditation. And I think today we give a lot of importance to what happens in our mind, to our intellect. Our society gives a lot of importance to that. But there is an intelligence, a physical intelligence, and there is people like myself that communicate better or understand ourselves better, our own emotions physically rather than intellectually. So for me, it's a way to find myself every day, to find my own center and then to start the day in a good way. The performance is never a repetition. That is the opposite. The performance is a one in a lifetime. Every show will be different. 
because you are different every day. So even if you're going to do 20 nutcrackers, every show will be different. And what you also try to do is every show you want it to be better. <laughs> so it's a constant search for perfection, which is in itself impossible. And as a dancer, you're aware it's impossible, but that doesn't mean you stop searching for it. So it never gets boring from that point of view. Tamara, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. It was an absolute pleasure meeting you. Thank you very much for having me. My thanks to Tamara Rojo. The Big Interview was produced by Yolene Gaufan, researched by Teresa Marvulli and edited by Kenya Scala and Alex Porfilix. I'm Chiara Rimella. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you.